Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening to the pod, this podcast, wherever you are. My name is Dr. Carla Ionescu, and welcome to The Goddess Project. This week, we are talking about Demeter and Persephone. We're talking about angry mothers and stolen daughters. And we're going to look at the ways in which Demeter and Persephone are often ignored, um, both historically and in popular culture. We're going to talk a little bit about how Persephone does get a little more attention for being married to the king of the underworld or Hades. Uh, but we're going to look at what does it mean? What does this myth mean really for women, um, for people, for history, um, etc.? So be prepared today. We're going to do a little, I'm going to do a little bit of storytelling. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of the Homeric hymns and um just so that you, I, I, for myself, I really like reading primary text and getting to know primary text as close as possible. And I find that what happens, of course, is that so many of us um, hear about these um, goddesses and these gods through, you know, social media or like little clips on the internet or whatever, which is fine, which is great. It's a great introduction. But then you want to have the ability to also read sort of the original influential text. And so I want to do that a little bit. I'm not going to bore you with uh, 25 pages of text, but I do want to point out a few interesting and important and maybe a little uh, fun details that don't always make it into the rest of the story. So that being said, um, let's begin. Um, and by that, <laughs> I mean, um, I'm going to share my screen um, for those of you watching this on YouTube. Uh, but again, you don't have to watch this on YouTube. We can just go through it all together. It's going to be lots and lots of fun. So let's start with um, what does it mean when we are looking at a myth in the ancient world? Actually, I think this is very important. Um, one of the things that people or my students always say to me and people when I tell them about a myth, uh, whatever myth, you know, whether it's Greek or whether it's Roman or whether it's Chinese or whether it's et cetera, whatever tri or tribal myth, um, the first thing that a lot of people assume, and I guess that's maybe something we've all been taught or it's been sort of indoctrinated into us, is that these, that the ancients created these myths to explain things um, that they didn't understand. And so we call that an etiological myth. Um, that is a myth that explains something. So for example, Zeus was the god of the thunderbolt because the Greeks didn't understand thunder and they feared it. <laughs> or um, Poseidon is the god of the great sea because um, the Greeks were afraid of the storms and water and etc. And while I think there's always an etiological aspect of a myth that is all myths explain human existence to some degree because that's their purpose. And I think that's why they're so valid for so many years um, and relevant. I think that that is a one dimensional interpretation. And by that, I mean, looking at the myth, for example, of Demeter and Persephone and saying, well, this is a myth that explains the seasons because they couldn't figure out, you know, the seasons. They didn't know why the crops die in the winter or return in the spring. I mean, that is so one-dimensional and so dismissive, I think, of ancient people who were planting the crops um, and who understood agriculture perhaps better than we do and who understood lunar cycles and solar cycles and the cosmos and earth vibrations in a much more in-depth way than we do today. Um, so... I want you to, every time that someone says that, or sort of that's your immediate reaction when you hear a myth, I want you to think about how you came to that conclusion, how you came to that reasoning, um, and also how you view humanity. Because I think what happens to us in the modern world is we view humanity on a progressive timeline so that the past is less progressive and the future is more progressive. And in fact, humanity doesn't work like that. Time doesn't work like that life doesn't work like that. Um, everything is cyclical. 
And so what we know now, I would argue that we are actually, other than technologically progressive, the rest of us, our sort of existence, um, even our philosophy, our intellect, our spirituality, everything is actually less progressive than many, many um, cultures that came even thousands of years ago. So I want to bring that up before we begin talking about Demeter and Persephone, because I want to try and frame the way that scholars are beginning to look at mythology now. And that framework is more um, multi-layered or what I call here multi-relevant, okay? Because the, the, the myth of Demeter and Persephone is multi-relevant. It deals with questions of things like gender roles, sexuality, marriage customs, relative power of deities. How much power do gods have uh, and human mortality? So this myth really deals with um, so many layers of the existence of Greeks overall, Athenian women, women overall, mothers and daughters, um, women's rights, all of these things um, that are still issues that we are dealing with today and issues that we really haven't solved at all but now we don't even have a mythology that helps us mourn through it. Right? So what does the myth of Demeter and Persephone teach us about women's roles? I'm going to start with the warning for women. Um, for those of you who may not know, Hades is Persephone's uncle. So Demeter and, per Demeter and Zeus have a daughter, Persephone. Okay? And Persephone is walking in the woods one day with her friends and along and sorry, out of us, all of a sudden the floor opens up beneath her and her uncle Hades grabs her and brings her down into the underworld. Okay. What does that tell us? Well, the very first thing that tells us is the old age adage, which is, women should not go out alone. Although she is with her girlfriends or other friends, but apparently they are not powerful enough to defend her from this God, this divinity, this uncle. Women should not speak to strangers. Women shouldn't trust any male family members. And women have to really make sure that they're not too pretty or too beautiful. So I want you to think about the implications of this myth, just in the small part of it. We're going to get into the larger parts, but in the small part of it, a young girl is walking with her friends out, you know, having some fun in this case in the woods and her uncle or a family member abducts her. And the blame she puts on herself. Yeah. So I'm going to read from you a little bit from the Homeric hymn. Okay. So Persephone was having a good time along with the other daughters of Okenus who wear their girdles slung low. So this just means they were free in the woods having fun. She was picking flowers, roses, beautiful violets, etc., up and down the soft meadow. Okay. And she was picking the narcissus flower who lures beautiful girls. So there's this sort of connection here between beautiful girls and narcissism. So don't like yourself too much, right? And she was doing, you know, she was just playing with her friends. Yeah. The earth was happy and smiled back in all its radiance, this beautiful girl. The sea was calm and she, Persephone, was filled with a sense of wonder as she reached out with both hands to hold the pretty flowers and enjoyed her day. And then the Lord Hades was riding on a chariot drawn by immortal horses, the son of Kronos, the one by many, known by many names. And he seized her against her will, put her in his golden chariot. So this, is a, this, this hymn does not have the opening up of the earth, but we'll see that happening in a little bit. In this case, he was riding by, you know, driving by, riding by. He sees her and he grabs her and abducts her against her will. So it's very clear here 
that it's against her will. Because there are always myths. Um, I don't know if you've read this. And certainly in popular culture and films where Persephone is a willing participant or uh, there, Persephone is a enjoys being the wife of Hades and actually joins him willingly and in pursuing a career as the queen of hell. Yeah, so we'll see that in a bit because that is the adjustment of modernity. That is the adjustment of patriarchy. But I'm giving you the primary source here, which is sort of the earliest story that we have. As he pulled her into her golden um, chariot and drove away, she wept and she cried in a piercing voice, calling on her father, Zeus, the son of Kronos, the highest and the best. But not one of the immortal ones or of the human mortals heard her voice, not even the olive trees which bear their splendid harvest, except for the daughter Perseus who heard it from her cave, Hecate. So Hecate heard her. And the Lord Helios heard it too, the magnificent son of Hyperion. They heard the daughter calling upon her father, but he, all by himself, Zeus, was seated far apart from the gods inside a temple, you know, receiving many prayers. He was receiving beautiful sacrificial rites from the mortal humans. And she was being taken against her will at the behest of Zeus by her father's brother, the one who makes many, the one who receives many, the son of Cronus. So I'm going to stop here. And because I know you probably heard that part at the behest of Zeus. Yeah. So what this hymn is trying to tell us is that perhaps, well, I don't know if it's even perhaps, to be honest, it seems like it's pretty sure that Zeus approved this abduction of his daughter, Persephone, okay? And that as she was being drawn down into the gates of hell, screaming and yelling for help, you know, other than Hecate and Helios, who were sort of minor divinities and didn't have very much options to help yet, Zeus was in his temple receiving his sacrifices, you know, being happy, enjoying himself, uh, not worried that his daughter was taken, so I just want you to think about the implications and the fact that so little has changed. You know, when we think about the Me Too movement, when we think about the abduction of indigenous women, when we think about the trauma that continues to be done to women in human trafficking and, and, and men, you know, um, so little has changed in the ways Honest, no, sorry, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this without being way too radical, but in the ways that men, some men, control the abduction of human bodies, in particularly women, by permitting other men to commit this crime. Does that make sense? I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it's almost like the very actions that are taking place in this myth are the very actions that are at the center of the issues that we continue to have today around the abduction of, of women and human trafficking. You know, one can think of the Epstein Chronicles or whatever um, and, and the human trafficking that happened there with the permission of men to other men and some women. You know, I don't want to ignore the fact that some women participate in this as well. But I want to point out how closely relevant this is. You know, this myth was around 2,500 years ago in the Homeric hymns, give or take. And it probably, you know, there's an argument that there were, this myth is older, predates the Homeric hymns. So let's say 3,000 years ago, this mythology describes this event in very detailed, in very detailed. And 3,000 years later, we have courts of law and other law enforcement and other issues that are exactly similar, dealing with the same exact issues. Okay, so what does this myth tell us about Greek women and all women, really? So we've talked a little bit about how this could be a psychological representation of what is going on, particularly around young women. Um, there's a lot of anthropological interpretations. 
But one of the things I want to talk about is the interpretation of mothers and daughters, particularly around the practice of marriage in ancient Greece. So it was a common practice in ancient Greece, particularly around Athenian women, for mothers to arrange, for fathers, sorry, fathers to arrange to sell their daughters to the highest bidder without informing or consulting the mother and then send them to go live with their husband's family. Also, if there was not a highest bidder and the father didn't have a male heir, one of the customs was to marry off the daughter to a family, a male family member, like an uncle or a first cousin, etc. So this myth really represents the mourning of mothers, the anger and rage of mothers who raise their daughters and may one day wake, knowing that one day they may wake up and their daughters have to leave home. So Demeter, what's really fascinating about Demeter is that as a goddess and as a Olympian, she doesn't have enough power initially to stop the giving away of her daughter. And so this makes her extremely relatable for Greek women who knew from the get-go from becoming pregnant or having a daughter, let's say, who knew that this day would come a day of mourning, a day of sadness, a day when their daughter would be ripped from them. And because Athenian women, especially wealthy women, were not allowed outside of their homes very often. So they would mostly spend their their days within the family compound and running the family compound. And if they did go out, it was very rare. And they would go out in those, um, uh, they would be carried around in uh, what we would call a litter. Although today that sort of reminds me of puppies. Uh, we, ha- we have associated that with other words, but it's, you know, that box, if some of you have ever watched Game of Thrones and you could see when Cersei's traveling or other dignitaries are traveling in that box that is carried by servants or slaves, that's what we call a litter. And women would be closeted in this way and they wouldn't have the opportunity to see their daughters again because their daughters would be on their own compound running that household, you know, having sons of da- and daughters themselves. So there is this morning, almost like a death, a grieving that all women experience when they have daughters. And this myth really embraces that mourning and acknowledges it actually and validates that mourning for mothers and daughters and the sense of helplessness. And also the sense that you don't know when it's going to happen, just like Demeter didn't know that Persephone would be just taken in the middle of some day walking in the forest you Greek women would not know when their daughters would go because they weren't consulted. They weren't, it wasn't something that um, fathers or men would think about. Now this is, I want to point out that this is in historical. How do I say this? This, this is in historical data code, let's say, or, you know, men writing about the practices of men in ancient Greece. I do want to point out that there is always a difference between actual everyday people practicing and the codes of law or the rules of men that are written down. Sorry, if you heard my dog sneezing, that's him sneezing a little bit. So, and the reason I want to point that out is because sometimes women did have a bit more influence than we are told historically, but the rules of men and the laws of men were something that always trumped everything else. So it's important that we understand how marriage worked in the Greek world. So marriage in Athens, especially because other places like Sparta, for example, had different um, marriage options or rules, but marriage in Athens was a contract between the husband and the bride's father Marriage is often a contract, as we know now, not the bride and the groom. And most girls were married off around the age of 13 or 14 once they've hit puberty or right after they hit puberty. Um, The marriage, like I said, of the only daughter with no brothers to her uncle was perfectly acceptable. And there are many cases in history in which this happens. The marriage, this type of marriage is called a patrilocal marriage. And this really means that women go into their 
husbands or families and spend their lives in their husband's families. There was another type of marriage called matrilocal marriage that was also quite famous in the ancient world, but a little more rare. So what would happen is if a father didn't have enough wealth or land or et cetera for their sons, let's say they had three sons and the youngest son had nothing, this son would then have the right to go roaming the countryside and, I don't know, battle bad guys or try to find his own way in the world. And one of the ways that these sons would find their way in the world is to go and marry a woman and move into her maternal family, let's say in this case. And we see this a lot with heroes. Perseus does this. Theseus does this. Hercules, Hercules does this. Heroes in the Greek world are usually men of some type of aristocracy or nobility that are traveling, battling some type of evil men or monsters or et cetera, saving some village or other. And then as a reward, they're married or become the consort of the woman um, nobility or the, the young daughter or the widow um, that runs that village or that community. And so this is actually a very interesting tradition but it's not as common as films would like us to. Uh, it's something that the Greeks admired and they saw as heroic, but most often sons did roam the countryside and perhaps did join you know, some kind of band of brothers or help defeat something or other, but it was more rare. Women, especially wealthy women or women of nobility or women that were particularly beautiful were often sold off in a marriage contract, okay? And so because mothers and daughters have almost no contact after the marriage, a patrilocal marriage, there is a, a, a tradition of mourning, a tradition of grieving. So who is Demeter? Let's take back, let's go back a step and establish who Demeter is. So we've talked a bit about the daughter and the tradition of marriage, but let's talk a little bit about who Demeter is. So I've mentioned that Demeter is married to Zeus. And that she is, her mother is Rhea. And so they are, her and Zeus are brother and sister. Which is not unusual for ancient divinities and also ancient peoples. So Demeter is the daughter of Cronus and Rhea, just like Zeus. Uh, and she is known as the goddess of corn. Okay, Older than Dionysus. And one I think of the most un, underrated Olympians. She is the, you know, the goddess of grain, the goddess of agriculture. Her Roman name is Ceres, C-E-R-E-S. And that is where, where we get the word cereal from. Cereal comes from grain, not often from corn, hopefully not so much corn, but anyways. And so she represents that almost that mother, mother nature, mother earth, not so much Gaia as sort of the mother earth of the ancient world, but Demeter represents the mother of agriculture, the mother of food, the mother of corn. Demeter was also the chief goddess of the Eleusinian mysteries. Um, this is a festival that came at the harvest, lasted nine days, um, usually happened in September around harvest season, and it happened every five years. Now, the mysteries are actually one of the most infamous festivals and mystery cults of the ancient Greek world. There's just so little that we know about it because the initiates were sworn to secrecy, and if you shared anything that happened from it, you would not celebrate or not be part of salvation. So there were mysteries of salvation, which we're going to talk about because it has a lot to do with going to the underworld and being rescued from the underworld. So there were mysteries of salvations, but we have very little knowledge of the actual rituals that took place. And we have very little knowledge of what it was that people or members got out of it. But the consensus is that there are mysteries of salvations, and we're going to see how that takes place with Demeter. So what happened in this story and who was involved? So remember that I told you that Persephone, while she's being drawn down 
into the underworld with Hades is screaming and, and, and calling out for help. And nobody except Hecate and Helios heard her. And the echo of her scream, according to the Homeric hymns, could be heard in the peaks of the mountains and the depths of the sea. And finally, her mother heard her. And a sharp pain seized Demeter's heart. And the headband on her hair, she tore off with her own immortal hands and threw a dark cloak over her shoulders. So tearing off your, your, your headband or tearing off your hair is a sign of mourning and throwing on a dark cloak, a black cloak is another sign of mo- mo- mourning. She sped off like a bird soaring over land and sea, Demeter, looking and looking, but no one was willing to tell her the truth. Not one of the gods, not one of the mortal humans, not one of the birds, the messengers of truth. So no one, Thereafter, for nine days, Lady Demeter wandered all over the earth, holding torches ablaze in her hands. Not once did she take of ambrosia and nectar, so she didn't eat, sweet to drink, so she didn't drink. In her grief, nor did she bathe her skin in water. But in the tenth bright dawn, Hecate came to her, holding a blaze in her hands. I want you to think about what does this mean that women hold fire in their hands. Remember last time when we talked about Lilith and we talked about how fire is a um, symbol of knowledge, purity, power, and it represents, you know, Yahweh, for example, in the burning bush. And it was something that Lilith was sitting beside uh, while she watched the cherubim. So I want you to think about how these two goddesses hold a flame in their hand when they're searching, but also when they're speaking to each other. Okay. So Hecate comes to her with a message and says, Demeter, giver of splendid gifts, which one of the gods who dwell in the skies or which one of the mortal humans seized Persephone and brought grief to you? I heard the sounds, says Hecate, but I did not see it with my eyes who it was. So I came to tell you everything, but I'm not sure who it is. And so Demeter set out with Hecate, holding torches ablaze in their hands to look for Persephone. Then came Helios, the seeing eye of gods and men. They stood in front of his chariot team, these two goddesses, and asked, where is my daughter? Okay. This is a girl born to me, a sweet young seedling, renowned for her beauty. This is the way that Persephone, um, Demeter speaks about Persephone, whose piercing cry I heard resounding through the boundless ether, as if she were being forced though I did not see it with my eyes. I turn to you, Helios, as one who ranges all over the earth and sea, as you look down from the bright ether with your sunbeams, Helios being the god of the sun. Tell me, by any chance, have you seen my child? And who has taken her away from me by force, against her will, and then gone away? Tell me, which one of the gods or the morals humans did it? And. As she spoke, Helios answers her, daughter of Rhea with the beautiful hair, Queen Demeter. You shall know the answer, for I greatly respect you and feel sorry for you as you grieve over your child, the one with the delicate ankles. No one else among all the immortals is responsible except the cloud gatherer Zeus himself, who gave her to Hades as his beautiful wife. So he gave her to his own brother, And Hades is heading to the misty realms of darkness, was heading to the misty realms of darkness and seized her as he drove in his chariot and as she screamed out loud. And so he tells her, Helios does tell her who took her. But then he says to her, I urge you, goddess, stop your loud cry of lamentation. You should not have anger without bonds all in vain. It is not unseemly to have of all the immortals such a son-in-law as Hades, the one who makes many lives. He's the brother of Zeus, whose seed is from the same place. So Helios is saying, you know, Demeter, I know this is tough, but you know, this is how things go. And Hades is not a bad choice because he is another king, almost equal to Zeus. I cannot even imagine Demeter's face while this is going on. 
And Haley's just saying, well, you know, you just got to kind of be happy, actually, that she was abducted by this dude, by your own brother, right? Because Hades would be Demeter's brother. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a good match. So, you know, let it be. And so it is Demeter's reaction to this abduction that really reflects the grieving and anger and rage and suffering of mothers. She really is the goddess of suffering, actually. And it is in this grief, in this moment of grief and anger at her own family and for the betrayal of what they've done to her and her daughter, I think that Greek women and perhaps women even today find the most relativity, the most connection to her pain. So Demeter visited by grief that was even more terrible than before. So at first, sorry, I'm reading, (laughs) reading and then talking to you guys. So at first, you know, she thought, okay, someone took my daughter and I'm going to deal with them because Demeter is a powerful divinity and has a great deal of power. And then realizing that actually she was betrayed by her own family member, by her own brother, and by her husband who actually gave her daughter away to her brother, she becomes even more angry and even more uh, grieving. In her anger at the one who is known for his dark clouds, the son of Kronos, so at Hades, she shunned the company of gods and lofty Olympus. She went away, visiting the cities of humans with all her fertile land holdings shading over her appearance for a long time. And not one of the men looking at her could recognize her. Not one of the women either who were accustomed to wearing their girdles low slung. So she went into sort of the wilderness, into the city. She disguised herself, right? She went deep into mourning. And then one day she came uh, came across the house of bright-minded Kilios, who was at that time the ruler of Eleusis. And she sat down near the road and she spoke to some daughters of the the villagers and she in her grief disguised herself as an old woman and was looking to sort of disappear into humanity yeah so now i'm going to skip over lots of the descriptions of how she speaks to the daughters and how they speak to her and how nobody recognizes her for demeter and etc cetera, etc cetera. anyways At some point in this conversation with the village daughters, uh, Demeter says, you know, I'm lonely, I'm old, I need something to do. And the daughters say, well, you know, our queen, the queen of this community, Matinira, um, also had just had a baby, a baby boy, and she needs somebody to take care of him. So if you'd like, uh, we can ask her if she wants, you know, some help, if you want to be the nanny of this child. And in her grief, Demeter accepts this sort of replacement for her daughter, this, you know, looking to fill that void as a parent of having lost a child. She is looking as well to fill that void um, of having lost the daughter, um, a daughter. And the daughters say to her, you know, our queen Matinera just had a baby and this baby was born late. After many prayers for the birth of a son, uh, he's a great joy to his parents. If you nourish him as his nanny to grow till he reaches the cross point of his life or coming of age, I can predict that you will be the envy of any woman who lays eyes on you because the queen will give you so much compensation uh, in return for raising him. Okay. Of course, again, Demeter is in disguise as an old lady. They don't know who she is. So Demeter says, yes, I think I would like to do that. I think I'd like to take care of this child and then there's a long uh, sort of discussion between they bring the queen to her and they go back and forth and the queen sees her as an honorable old lady and says yes um, I would really like for you uh, to take care of my child and the queen says you know take this little boy of mine and nourish him he is late born and it was beyond my expectations that the immortals could have given him to me I prayed many times to have him if you nourish him to grow till he reaches the cross point of his life I can predict you'll be the envy of many women. And then Demeter says to her, to the queen, woman, may the gods give you good things with positive intentions. I will take your little boy as you tell me to. I will nourish him. And do I do not expect that through being his nursemaid, 
he would perish from pestilence or from the undercutter. So the one worry that the queen had was that um, her son was born to her too late in life, which is what Laidborn refers to, and that he was sort of weak um, as a baby. And they were nourishing him and taking care of him and praying that the immortals will allow him to live. But the queen is not 100% sure that he'll make it into um, adulthood. And so she's praying that this older lady will take care of her. And Demeter says to her, you know, I know of an antidote antidote that is far more powerful than the woodcutter. I know a genuine remedy for painful pestilence. Okay, so she took her child, she took the baby, sorry, to her fragrant bosom in her immortal hands, and the queen rejoiced in her mind. And so it came to pass that the splendid son of bright-minded Calios, Demophon, so that's the, the baby's name, who was born to Metanera, the queen, was nourished in the palace, and he grew up like a daemon, not eating grain, not sucking from the breast. So a daemon in the ancient world is, and yes, in the ancient world, is a semi-divinity. Uh, divinity, usually an interceptor. So a daemon would be a divinity like nymphs and other small, like pan, other small divinities that are sort of interceptors. That is, they communicate between gods and humans, or they're sort of, yeah, minor divinities. Now, with the dawn of Christianity, the term daemon, which had a very good connotation, as you can see here in the story, becomes a term that's associated with demon. And so then these minor divinities in the ancient world that was celebrated become demonic yeah. uh, in a monotheistic tradition of Christianity, which is, of course, allows for only one divine being, which is, of course, Jesus and his, and his father. And so that the fact that this child grew up like a daemon is actually a great compliment and not eating grain and not sucking from the breast means that he was being fed the food of the gods. Demeter used to anoint him with ambrosia, which is the food of the gods, as if he had been born to the goddess. So she would breathe down her sweet breath on him and she held him to her bosom. At night, she would conceal him with the light of the fire as if he were a smoldering log. So she would put him in the fire and his parents, his human parents were kept unaware. But they marveled at how full and bloom he came to be. And to look at him was looking like looking at the gods. Now Demeter would have made him ageless and immortal if it had not been for the heedlessness of the queen who went spying one night, leaving her own pet chamber and caught sight of what Demeter was doing. And she let out a shriek and struck her thighs, afraid for her child. Weeping, she yelled, my child, Demophon, this stranger, this woman is making you disappear into the mass of flames. This is making me weep in lamentation. This is giving me so much anguish. So obviously the queen sees her kid in the fire. Demeter's just sitting there and looks like she's cooking him. (laughs) And the queen is freaking out. You know, what have you done to my child? Why are you sticking him in the fire? What is going on? But when Demeter sees her, she gets angry really, really angry. Yeah. She, she takes the baby who had been born in her mother's palace, his, in his mother's palace, um, and put him, you know, pushes him, pushes the baby away from her, takes him out of the fire. Right. Um, and says to the queen, ignorant humans, heedless, unable to recognize in advance the difference between future good fortune and future bad. It is your heedlessness. You have made a big mistake a mistake without remedy. I swear by the river Styx, the witness of oaths that gods make, I say this, immortal and ageless for all days would I have made your little boy. I would have given him time that is unwilting. But now there is no way for him to avoid death and doom. Still, he will have some time that is unwilting because he once sat at my knees and slept in my arm. What I want now is that every year the sons of this town, Eleusis, will have a war, a terrible battle amongst each other. They will do so for all days to come. For I am Demeter, the holder of time. I am the greatest boon and joy for immortals and mortals alike. Okay. And then she, so, <laughs> so she yells at the queen. 
you know, humans, what do they know? Nothing. So she goes, you know what? As my punishment for you having disrespected me. So every year there will be a battle here. You know, there will be some kind of loss here. And on top of that, you will also build me a temple. Okay. And then she sort of pulls off this age old appearance and pulls off her cloak. And um, the queen realizes and everybody realizes who she is. Okay. And then, of course, they bow down to her, they apologize, etc. They build this temple, this temple in Eleusis, which you could still go visit today if you ever want to. It's wonderful. And uh, it's, it's still half up. Um, and this is sort of the beginning of the Eleusinian mysteries and the beginning of the practice of the ritual for Demeter. Right? Uh, because this is who builds, who builds this temple and Demeter demands that every year, or every, in this case, every five years, which happens sort of later, um, there would be a ritual in her honor, okay? So this is not the end, though, because Demeter then sits down. Okay, people are building her temple. Everything's great. Demeter sits down, watches them build a temple. But she's still back to mourning. You know, she was distracted for a bit, sort of trying to replace her daughter with a son. But now she has nothing. So she sits down, shunning the company of all the gods. She was wasting away with yearning for her daughter. She made that year the most terrible one for mortals all over the earth, the nurturer of many. It was so terrible that year that it makes you think of the hound of Hades, Cerebrus. The earth did not send up any seed. And Demeter kept the seeds covered on the ground. Many a curved plow was dragged along the fields by many ox, all in vain. Many a bright grain of wheat fell into the earth, all for nothing. At this moment, Demeter could have destroyed the entire race of humans with her harsh hunger and anger, thus depriving them and the gods of all sacrifice and possible offerings. So no more sacrificial portions of meat for eating or for burning. And Zeus, finally, starting to get worried, upset, freaking out. Because now the humans cannot offer him sacrifice. First of all, if the humans die, nobody can offer him sacrifice. And even if the humans are starving, they can't afford to offer him any sacrifice. So there he goes. He's got nothing. Okay? Nothing. So then he sends a bunch of people, he sends Iris first, and he sends a bunch of people to be like, you know, Demeter, get over it, get over it, get over it. Iris goes down and says, Zeus wants you to get over it. Demeter tells, sends her back and goes, yeah, tell Zeus where he can stick it. Okay. And then Zeus sends more immortals to try and convince her to try and do, you know, to try and get her to bless the grain, bless everything. She's like, nope, nope, nope. So I want you to think about the fact that in her anger and her sadness. Demeter withdraws and withholds power, the power of agriculture, okay, the power of food, of reproduction, of nourishment. And in one way, the power of Mother Earth, the power of Earth, you know, which we're, we're abusing um, this idea that if there is no food, if there is no reproduction within the Earth of anything that nourishes life, there will be no life. So even though it seems like this is a story, oh yeah, you know, she didn't, she held back the seeds and she held back the grain and blah, blah, blah. There was no harvest. I want you to think about actually how people overlook the power of those who control the food, of those who control seeds and the growth of food, and of those who may control the ability of the earth to reproduce. You know, like that old saying, you know, uh, there's that old indigenous saying that when all the trees are gone, you realize you can't eat money. This is very much that idea. You know, if all the grains are gone and the soil is polluted and there's no way that we can make food, you'll realize that you can't eat, I don't know, fancy cars or gold bars or whatever it is that the wealthy hoard. Yeah. So even though this story has some simplicity to it, it's in the simplicities that we can find the complexities. Okay. So yes, eventually Zeus says, okay, listen, we can't go on like this. Everyone will die. So he goes to Hades 
to persuade him to allow Persephone to leave. So basically now he has to go to his brother and be like, yeah, uh, I think you need to let go of her because if you don't let go of her, we'll all die, you know? Um, and he goes, you know, and Hermes goes and, and talks to, uh, to Hades. Long story short, um, Hades says, okay, fine, right? Because also Hades needs the system. You know, the system has to be in place actually, uh, for both Zeus and Hades and everyone else to be able to be successful in the structure. Um, so even though Hades is in charge of only the underworld, if the other system, right, if the whole system collapses, it affects all of them. And, and it's so interesting how the system and the framework is organized in such a way that those that are in power need that system to be in place in order to control the rest of you know, in this case, humanity, but even the other gods. So Hades finally says, okay, yes, fine. I'm going to have to let her go. I understand because if I don't let her go, um, the um, sorry, the rest of the system is going to fall apart. So he tells Persephone, uh, one, he tells Persephone and she rejoices. She swiftly sets out with joy. Yeah, so she's happy to be free. Yay, I can go home. I can return to my mother. I can go back to the, uh, uh, you know, the earth above the underworld, right? But as he gives her, as he allows her to leave, he gives her the, the honey sweet berry of the pomegranate to eat, okay? Sort of like um, he, he hides the way that he gives it to her, right? He says, here, here, uh, have some pomegranate before you go. Because he did not want her to stay for all time over there up top at the side of her honorable mother, the one with the dark robe. And so everyone knows, except in this case, it seems like Persephone, that if you eat something from the underworld, you must return to the underworld. Okay. So Persephone eats some of the pomegranate seeds. She gets on her chariot. She goes up to the, to the, um, above the underworld, I guess, to the natural world. Um, and comes to the place where her mother is waiting and wait and waiting for her. Yeah. And then as her mother sees her, there's this beautiful reunion and there's lots of paintings that represent this beautiful reunion um, of mother and daughter. Yeah. So when Demeter sees them, she rushes forth like a maenad, like a wild woman down a mountain wooden slope. And then the earth, but when the earth starts blooming with fragrant flowers of springtime and flowers of everywhere, right? So that's when you, you see that Demeter rejoices because all the flowers and all the seeds and everything starts to blossom. Yeah. Um, as she approaches her daughter, she begins to understand that something is going on. So she says, what kind of a ruse was used to deceive you by Hades? Yeah. The one who receives many souls. And then Demeter is answered by Persephone. Yeah. So mother, I'll tell you everything. But when I left, yeah. So I was taken down. I was screaming. Nobody heard me, etc. And then when I left, when I was leaving, he gave me something to eat and I ate it. Okay. And that's the part where Demeter understands, yeah, that her daughter has to return. Yeah. So there is this compromise, right? That every time the season comes around, Persephone must spend a third of her time in the underworld, which is usually the winter time. So she, so the way that is sort of explained seasonally is that when the fall comes after the harvest, Demeter is saying goodbye to her daughter. So it starts to get colder. Then Persephone goes down into the underworld. So you have winter. And then once um, the spring comes, when the, is when Persephone is coming back up. So as the spring comes and the daughter and mother, mother and daughter reunite, you have this moment of happiness and joy. And then you have summer where they spend together and everything's great. And then again, we get to fall where uh, Persephone is about to leave. So that is the story um, of Demeter and Persephone as written in the Homeric hymns um, in the original sort of cut of the Homeric hymns. And I want to talk about a couple of things um, based on that story. What's this thing with the burning baby? Yeah, poor Demophon. You know what? Well, why is Demeter 
playing nurse to a young baby boy and sticking him in the fire. So there have been numerous interpretations. I think this part is often ignored, actually, in popular culture. I, I can't think of one instance where I've seen it um, in film, uh, but you guys correct me if I'm wrong. And actually, when I was looking at art for this part of the myth, you know, uh, to represent or to show any, anybody in the ancient world depicting um, Demeter sticking this poor baby boy, well, not poor baby boy, actually, because he's not being hurt while he's in the flames. Um, there isn't, you know, there really isn't. There's a little, there's a couple of pieces of art of Demophon um, learning about agriculture and maybe part of the illusion mysteries there. But there really isn't very much discussion of, of what, what is going on here. Um, so numerous psychologists, anthropologists, other ologists um, have come up with some suggestions. Of course, the one is the idea of replacement, but it's not just replacement. Demeter chooses a boy. And I think that's very significant because boys don't leave. And so in replacing her long lost daughter and trying to fill that void, Demeter chooses a boy. And so that really shows us the influence of gender roles and the influence of how much pain a mother really feels at the loss of a daughter, so much so that she doesn't choose a baby girl because she knows that that will be taken from her as well. Yeah. So that's kind of one of the aspects. The other aspect is that by making Demophon immortal, she's stealing a soul that really should have gone to Hades um, to replace the soul that or the, the deity or the, well, the daughter, obviously, that Hades took from her. So it's a really interesting small piece of psychology that I think we don't talk about. And that is that when a parent loses a child, the void and the pain is so powerful that the urge to replace is one, but it's impossible to replace. Right. So that's the that's the devastation. And that in the case of Demeter, the urge to replace was even further attempted to replace it with a boy to maybe never have that loss again. But again, be, as we see, she, you know, she wasn't able to complete that replacement because the truth is that you never replace a lost child. Right. Um, you know, you may have other children and there's other joys and moments of joys in the life, but you do not replace that loss. And in fact, you do not replace that loss, any loss, but particularly um, a child. Um, Demophon as a character, historically speaking, uh, there's a couple of sort of contradicting stories. The first one is that he never, he never grows into, he dies, he never grows into adulthood. So that's the most popular one. The second one is that he does grow into adulthood and he is part of this battle, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Performance at the illusion uh, rituals. Because what happens is Demeter tells the secret of agriculture and seeding and farming to his older brother, Triptolemus. And so Triptolemus then over a period of time becomes the most significant figure. And he shows up in art with Demeter and Persephone and he shows up in sculpture. So Demophon kind of falls off. I don't know if he just wasn't interesting as a figure or if just the fact that Triptolemus becomes this character that has now the knowledge of the grain and goes around Greece and, and shows everybody how to seed the grain properly and how to honor Demeter properly and all these kinds of things. So it remains in the Eleusinian family, the secret of Demeter and the secret of the mysteries and all those kinds of things, but it's not Demophon, poor baby, um, who is the one that inherits that. It's his older brother. So again, that has a lot to do with um, also Greek um, traditional hierarchies of older brothers and baby brothers. And also the fact that the baby was late born, which means not only is he last, but he seemed to be weaker than his older brothers. So perhaps that's why she teaches him that. So one of the last things that I wanted to talk about was this idea of dissension. It's probably one of my favorite things about the myth and probably one that is not often talked about outside of sort of goddess cultures. Um, the scholar and the author, Glennis Livingstone, 
um, has a book called Pagan Cosmology. If you're interested, it's a great book in which she talks about matricentric cosmology. So the mother-daughter mysteries. And what's really fascinating about this mother-daughter relationship, the mother-daughter mysteries is the descent into sovereignty or descent into wisdom. So that there is an old pre-Greek tradition that in order to gain wisdom, you must descend into the darkness. You must descend into the unknown, right? You must go deep within, whether metaphorically or physically. So that, for example, women would pray in caves or would pray in dark nooks. Um, and the idea was that the darkness is the cosmos and the womb. And that the darkness and maybe even surviving the darkness and coming back out from the darkness is the way that you gained wisdom, particularly for women. Yeah. Um, and there are numerous uh, sculptures and reliefs of Demeter giving the wheat grain to her daughter, Persephone. Okay. And so there's this passing on of knowledge because Demeter eventually sort of passes on the knowledge to Persephone. Um, and we see this movement of mother-daughter, the passing of knowledge between mothers and daughters. We see this in Eleusis, of course. We see it in Crete. We see it in the Aegean. We see it everywhere. The continuity of spiritual relationships or religious relationships um, is unbroken between mothers and daughters, right? So this idea that there is an earth-based cosmology, and that that cosmology has to do with descending into darkness. And because the ancient peoples used to worship in caves and in darkness, there was the sense that this worship was a return to the darkness of the womb or the womb of the earth. And that in this darkness, in this cosmic space of the womb, the knowledge, the wisdom was formed and given. And in coming back up, the way that Persephone comes back from the underworld, you are able to bring that wisdom and share it. So there's this very infinite uh, circular or cyclical relationship between mothers and daughters. Um, and there's a learning that's passed down, not just in the DNA itself, of course, but also in the traditions that are passed down. Um, so descending into wisdom is a really fascinating aspect of how women told their stories, how um, practices like rituals, but also healing practices, of course, giving birth practices, death rituals, all of the rituals and all of the practices were passed down orally from mother to daughter. Um, and Demeter and Persephone really exemplified this tradition in their connection, in their bond. So there's no one else in the Olympian pantheon that really embodies this relationship. I mean, Artemis and Leto a little bit, but it's more that Artemis defends Leto constantly. So there's a protective aspect there, sort of a child protecting their mother. But Demeter and Persephone have a, such a complicated and powerful relationship so much so that their relationship, particularly Demeter's mourning over Persephone being taken from her, affects the progression or the reproduction of the entire earth, all the earth. So this is uh, the ultimate power, right? Without food, like I said, there is no reproduction. Um, and so we see that relationship as the most powerful relationship. And so how do we apply this myth in real life. Now, there's lots of interpretations. Like we've talked about at the beginning, this sort of allegorical interpretation of the season changing, the family experience interpretation of the daughter's marriage, right? So the, the um, daughter is removed from her mother. You know? Then there's all of the symbolic interpretation of life and how the mother who gives life can also withhold life. Yeah. Um, and then Demeter's myth becomes a sort of etiology for the presence of death. You know? And so some people argue that the mysteries of Demeter are mysteries of salvation and reaching into and reaching the afterlife. Because in a way, Demeter is able to bring her daughter back to life. Yeah. 
Uh, and of course, as we've seen, the symbolism around the loss of a child, lamentation rituals. Demeter is what we call Mater Dolorosa. Mater Dolorosa refers to a sorrowful mother. And in fact, the other major Mater Dolorosa that we have seen historically is the Virgin Mary when she grieves for her dead son. And I want you to think about this because this stuff kind of blows my mind sometimes. So Demeter, who is Mater Dolorosa for her daughter, is able to withhold creation until her daughter comes back to life. The Virgin Mary, because she is built in a patriarchal of structure is Mater Dolorosa to her son, but has zero power to bring him back to life. That power, according to Christianity, is with his father, right? So I want you to think about um, the implications of modernity, um, of monotheism, uh, of patriarchy, okay? I want you to think about how powerful that is. So a mother can fight for her daughter under this legend, mythology, tradition to such a degree that the male, the king of hell, has, and the king of the gods, Zeus, have no choice but to return her back to life. But the Virgin Mary, because of the construct that she's built under, mourns her son, of course, repeatedly, actually, but is helpless in affecting the earth, salvation, everything, right? So she is actually a figure of mourning, not a figure of re resurrection. Where Demeter is a figure of resurrection, the ability to res. Not only does Demeter give life to Persephone, she brings her back to life. I don't know. I don't know if it's just me. Is it just me? It's it's fascinating to me. It's fascinating to me. And as a mother who has a daughter and a son, um, I understand this myth on a personal level because mothers and daughters have a relationship that is instinctual if that's the word, there is less communication needed. There is, there is a deeper consciousness that happens between mothers and daughters that is inherited in the bond. Not always. I don't want to say that all mothers and daughters have this. Um, but, you know, if you have sort of a, a mother who is concentrating on being a mother and that has this characteristics of raising her children, loving both of her children equally, but the daughter uh, and mother and daughter dichotomy is so much different than the mother and son. The mother and son is also a very deep, deep, deep bond as well, but in a very different psychology, there's a different relationship there. So you can have, of course, numerous relationships out of love, pure love, but this kind of conscious bond takes different shape between mothers and daughters. And I think this is where um, the loss of Demeter is important, not just because she loses a child, but that is important, of course. But the, the, the force, the, the rage, the push against patriarchy to return her daughter. And, you know, in the end, it's not 100% successful. I do want to say that in the sense that even Demeter, in her, in her greatness, still has to compromise her daughter, in a sense. So it's, it's, it's a bittersweet win, you know, but fascinating, nonetheless, I think. Because it's the only story in history in which this happens in this way, in which a mother takes on patriarchy to bring her daughter back to life. And it's said to me that we don't see this in popular culture. You know, usually I like to do a little popular culture at the end of our podcast and talk about, well, how does Demeter show up in film? And where have we seen her in film? And we haven't. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's some mentions of Demeter here and there. I'm trying to think of the first one that comes to mind. I think Percy Jackson, there are some mentions of Demeter, but it's always Persephone. 
It's always Persephone that shows up. Persephone shows up in Shadow Hunters. Persephone shows up in a few other, of course, in the Percy Jackson stories, in a few other stories. But she is always a willing participant as the king of uh, the queen of hell. So her abduction, her forced marriage, her possible rape is never mentioned um, in popular culture. In, in popular culture. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there was sort of any instances. And if you do think them, I totally would love for you to, to send me a, a text or a comment or a DM to of some examples of Persephone in the way that her mythology was originally told. That would be great. And we could totally discuss that. But at this moment in time, I cannot think of any other than, like I said, her often being the wife of Hades. And she's usually pretty beautiful, of course, and sexy. And her and Hades have been romanticized into this couple, this power couple. And there are times when I'm thinking, oh, that's really cool. And I wish it really was like that. But it really wasn't, you know. And Persephone doesn't willingly spend any time with Hades. She has no choice but to go and be with Hades. And so I don't think that that's ever really explained. And that's probably because it makes people very uncomfortable when you're going to watch a show or a movie that's fun and interesting about mythology. You don't want to be constantly reminded when you're looking at Persephone that she was abducted and she's really technically sort of being humanly trafficked. No, that's not right. Not humanly trafficked because she's but married off, you know, in this forceful way um, that she cannot ever escape. You know, this is her permanent condition. So that's a little bit worrisome. So <laughs> sorry, I didn't want to end up on a sad note, but it's just, you know, how it goes sometimes with these stories. Um, so I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. I really enjoyed putting it together for you. Um, next week, we are going to look at ISIS. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I hope that you'll enjoy, you will join me again next time when we look at ISIS. ISIS has a fantastic mythology. Um, and her Egyptian mythology is full with actually things like resurrection, mothering, putting back together Osiris, um, having sex with his dead corpse you know, creating life, really fascinating stuff. So I hope that you will join me uh, next time when we take a look at Isis and her story. Um, and if you'd like to um, see more or participate in the question and answer um, podcast, um, please join me on Patreon or become a member on Patreon uh, where I'm going to be collecting any questions that people have, uh, in this case, about Demeter and Persephone, but any questions about mythology. And I will put together a podcast that will be a question and answer podcast. So a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to all your questions um, and all your thoughts. Yeah? Um, this is a this is going to be a four-part series, the Goddess series. So um, Isis will be third, and then we'll do Artemis fourth. And then moving forward in our next series, I think I'm going to look at fairy tales. I have so much to say about fairy tales and, and Disney and things like that. So that will be our upcoming series um, in the next couple of weeks. So I hope you all have a great day. Thank you again for joining me. Um, please send me a message or a comment if you have any questions um, or thoughts or links or anything that you think would be interesting or relevant to this podcast. All right. Have a good day, y'all. Bye.